We are continuing our, our, our study through the Bible, book by book, getting that big picture of God's Word, and it's, and it's appropriate in Advent season or anticipating uh, the celebration of Christmas. And as we celebrate the first coming of Jesus our Savior, we anticipate, we look toward His second coming. And it's, a, it's appropriate then that we're in the prophets. This morning we'll be considering the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah speaks to both of those. Isaiah is that prophet that looks for, to the first coming of Christ and then looks ahead from there all the way to the second coming. And sometimes those two get sort of mingled together in the book of Isaiah. But we're going to see why it is that he came the first time, and why he comes again, and what, will he, what he accomplished in coming the first time, what our Savior will accomplish in coming again. Isaiah is a unique book. Isaiah is a book of 66 chapters, just like the Bible has 66 books in the Bible. That's kind of a fun coincidence. Uh, the chapters, of course, are not inspired chapter divisions, but it's kind of cool, 66 books, 66 chapters. People have called Isaiah the Bible within the Bible. Because of all that it contains, now just to take that a a, a step further, there are 39 books in the Old Testament. There are 27 books in the New Testament. This is helpful for us to know now and again as we're doing this Route 66 through God's Word. Well, there are 39 uh, books or chapters in the first big division of Isaiah, and then at chapter 40, you'll see there's, a, there's a, a change in tone. There's a clear difference from chapter 40 forward that almost seems like this is another prophet. So some people along the way who, who take more of an academic rather than a God wrote this book view of the Bible have, have even suggested there were really two different prophets that actually wrote the book because of that change of tone. But Jesus himself, as he quotes from the book of Isaiah, he refers to both, both halves of the book, if you will, as from the one prophet Isaiah. So it's one prophet, but there's that change. Some people look at the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament and say, it's a different God. This is a whole different theology, but it's not, and that's our purpose in Route 66. That just like you have one Isaiah from chapters 1 to 39 and chapter 40 and forward, you have one God who has revealed himself in the Old Testament and then even more fully, building on that foundation even more fully in the New Testament. There, there is more theology in expressly in Isaiah than perhaps any of the other prophets. And God's holiness and justice are very clear. Man's sinfulness and helplessness, just as clear. God's unique power and glory, his sovereign authority as maker, defender, and redeemer of humanity. God's election of Israel is very clear in this book, as well as God's inclusion of all nations in his redemption, in his rescue. God's determined faithfulness in the midst of humanity's deliberate rebellion. There's an invitation to cleansing and salvation and fellowship. There is a call to faithfulness. There's an integrity in service. There are real conflicts in the book when faith collides with the geopolitical realities of the day. The situation on the ground, what's happening in life and in the world, the challenges put forward. The, 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 the challenge that I think rings and echoes all through the Bible. There's one question God asks of us again and again more than any other, and that question is this. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? That's the question of the Bible. 
And it's especially the question of Isaiah. It's interesting, again, that that theme comes so clear in Isaiah, which is, in a sense, a mini-Bible, a Bible within a Bible. Will you trust me? The question Isaiah poses to us is, who will you trust? Where will you put your confidence in? Who will you trust? The, the, the book of Isaiah puts a couple of other questions to us. Can any man stand before this holy and just God? And if so, how? Can, can God's promises stand up in the midst of humanity's sin and rebellion? This deliberate rebellion of humanity that is then epitomized and exemplified by a national people's rebellion and deliberate abandonment of their God. Scurrying and scattering in other directions. That's what humanity has done. Can God's promises stand in the midst of that sin and rebellion? That's the question and the answer the book of Isaiah provides for us. Who will you trust? First of all, as we open the book of Isaiah to Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 1, and you'll find us, well, you're not using a pew Bible this morning, are you? I didn't think of that until just now. (laughs) If you were, it would be on page 566. If you'd like a Bible to follow along with, if you put your your hand up, one of the ushers will bring one to you. Okay, I see one hand, ushers. If you're on your game, there we go. There's a a couple of hands out there, so... um, Let's see. Give a few minutes and then just slip that hand back up and he'll be, he'll be back in the room with, a, with an armload of Bibles. All right, Isaiah chapter 1. Let me, let me begin reading and think in terms of what it is that humanity trusts in. What do we put our trust in as I read some of these verses? Chapters 2, 2 to 4. Hear, O heaven, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I've reared up and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. A, a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. The Hebrew literally reads, they are estranged backwards. They are separated backward away from God. Humanity would say today that we have moved on from God. We are more enlightened than that today. God says, no, you have fallen backwards. You are separated from me backwards, not forwards. It's a deliberate change from, and a challenge to our, our own understanding. People tend to trust religious activity instead of, of humble faith in God. Look, at, look from verse 11 of chapter 1. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings and the burnt offerings of ram and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls and of lambs or of goats, When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in a solemn assembly. Your new moons, your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Here's the purpose of the book. Right up in the first chapter. 
Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. How can that happen? How can that be? That is the purpose of the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah confronts sin directly and dramatically and yet answers it just as directly and just as dramatically. People tend to trust in the way things work. This is just the way of the world. This is just how things are. Look at uh, verse 22. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels, the companions of thieves, corrupt leaders, corrupt politicians. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless. The widow's cause does not come to them. We, we learn in this society, you've got to play by the rules. You've got to do things the way they happen because that's just the way the world is. God says, no, no. He is different. He stands apart from that and calls his people to be different, calls us to live different, calls us to expect differently and betterly and certainly of ourselves, how we will conduct ourselves in the midst of the world. People trust in wealth and other idols. Look at verse uh, 20, well, 25 and 26. I will turn my hand against you. I will smelt away your drosses with lye, remove all your alloy. I will restore your judges as at the first, your counselors at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. God says, I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to change things. It will not continue as it is. We'll not continue trusting in the same things. Look at chapter 2 and verse 7. Their land is filled with silver and gold. There's no end to their treasure. Their land is filled with horses. There's no end to their chariots. They trust in their wealth. They trust in their resources. They trust in, in, in their military might. They trust in the strength of their armies, their horses, and their chariots. I see, I see one of the men going around with a couple of Bibles, if you still were looking for one. The, the different things that we trust in, who will you trust in instead of trusting in the Lord our God? We might, be, uh, cons- we might be trusting in financial gain no matter the cost to others. Look at chapter 5. Turn over a few pages to chapter 5, verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room, and you're made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. Ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath. A homer of seed, just a handful of seed will yield, or a bunch of seed will yield just an ephah, a ephah, small amount of grain in comparison. So I think about that. I think, of, I think of the city of Detroit. Now, Detroit is not a fulfillment of the book of Isaiah, but a, but a once prosperous city Empty houses going for a dollar or, 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 or for a pittance as compared to their worth and compared to the cost even to build them. Uh, houses that are just going to have to be bulldozed over. Nobody lives there anymore. Large sections of the city, they, 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 they feel like they need to close down and pull in the borders a little bit. People, we, we, in America, perhaps as much as anywhere else in the world, we trust in our wealth, we trust in our success, no matter how it might have been gained. And God holds humanity accountable. Chapter 6 gives us an image of in the midst of all that's going on in the world, one man, one man gets reminded of who God really is. Chapter 6, verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. 
I saw him high and sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And the one seraph called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When one man, in the midst of all that's going on in Israel in that day, one man sees God as he really is. And that opens his eyes to see himself in comparison. How can I stand before the true and living God? How can I stand before the judge of the universe? I'm in a lot of trouble here. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And yet, God is in our midst, and God is the judge of the universe, and God himself will hold us accountable. And how can any of us stand? How can God's promise of restoration be possible in the midst of this kind of sin? We get a glimpse of it. We get a glimpse of it right here with one man. Verse 6, then one of the... Seraphim, one of the angels, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched it to my mouth, and he said, Behold, that this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. I will not trust myself. One of those last things, who will I trust? That question that's put before us in the early chapters of Isaiah, who will I trust? I won't trust my riches. I won't trust our strength. I won't trust our military might. I will not trust my ability to acquire and gain and to somehow assemble security for myself. I will not trust in my religious practices. I will not trust in whether or not I've been baptized. I will not trust in the fact that I come to church or, or, or do various things of service. I will not trust in the sacrifice that I have made, I will not trust in my rightness because when I come before the presence of God, I find I have none. Certainly nowhere near enough. Isaiah himself says in another place, our righteousness is as filthy rags. I've got nothing to bring. So the hymn writer says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I'm getting ahead a little bit of the book of Isaiah, however. There's a a personal individual story, the prophet Isaiah, that introduces him to us in the midst of the book. And that's helpful because then the Lord says, who will I send? And who will go for me? Who will carry my message to these people? And Isaiah says, here am I. He doesn't just say, I'm over here, Lord. He says, here am I. He gives himself. Here am I, Lord. Send me. In the midst of his lips having been cleansed from the altar of God, now he's ready to serve God with those cleansed lips. Those lips will bear the message of God to the people around him. There's something there for us. This is a great missionary passage, but all of us are on this mission. If you have been cleansed by the altar of God, you are on that same mission to declare his glory, to tell his story to the people around you to whom you are sent. And one of the people that he's sent to is in chapter 7, King Ahaz. In chapter 7, King Ahaz is a young king. He's a naive king. He's a little bit of a proud king, and he knows what he's going to do. He's faced with rumors of an attack from the north. Syria and the northern Israel kingdom are going to attack and invade Judah. They're going to put him down, and they're going to put up a puppet king who will do their bidding instead. They're going to take over. And the only way for them to take over is for them to kill 
kill this young king. That Uzziah has died, and, and this king's father has died, and now he's young on the throne, and he's vulnerable. Pick it up in verse 3. The Lord, the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out and meet Ahaz. You and Shear Jeshub, your son, his name means a remnant will return. There's the promise of God in the person of the son. Your son at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to them, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of, 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 resin, of, of resin of Syria, the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim or Israel and the son of Remaliah, they have devised evil against you. But God says this evil will not stand. Look at verse 8 and 9. It will not stand, it will not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. Their own judgment is coming. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. But if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Isaiah says in some translations, if you do not stand in faith, you will not stand at all. That's an important message. Not only for Ahaz, but that's the thrust of the book. Who will you trust? Where will you put your confidence? Where will you and I put our hope? This is what the Christmas season is about, isn't it? This is what the Advent season is about. And Ahaz, the king, he says, you know, I haven't got time for this. I've got, he's out there in the water supply. He's checking fortifications. What he's doing, he's expecting an invasion. I don't have time for this prophet religious stuff. I'm not going to go, well... Isaiah, sorry, I got ahead of myself. Isaiah says, it is so important for you to believe God that you need to ask of him a sign. Ask something big. Ask something hard. Ask something that, from from the highest of heavens, ask something that's going to make God stretch out his right arm of power. Ask something that's big that you'll know God is the one to answer it. And Ahaz, the young king, answers proudly, I'm not going to put the Lord God to the test. I'm not going to ask of the Lord a sign. Well, that's fine, except when God told you to. Because he said, you're not believing me. And I know you're not believing me, and unless you believe me, you will not stand. He says, I'm not going to ask a sign. So Isaiah says, is it a little thing? Is it a little thing? O house of David, that not only, will you, not only will you try the patience of men, but you would try the patience of God himself. The Lord himself will give you a sign. And here it comes, Isaiah seven fourteen: The virgin, the maiden, will be with child, and she will bear a son. And his name will be called Emmanuel. This sign is given to all of the house of David to know that right now we have a wicked, unbelieving king who will not trust the Lord. This is what the sign will be. This is how you will know when the true son of David, the true king of David, the righteous king who will trust and lead us in trusting the Lord, when he has arrived, this is how you'll know. The virgin has been with, will be with child and will bear a son and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Ahaz needed to know that in the midst of the, looking like the bottom has dropped out, God will be with us if only we will trust him. And God would so be with us that God would step into humanity, take upon himself humanity, and be with us. The word was with God and was God, John 1 says. 
And it says that that word, that very manifestation and expression of God himself became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, Emmanuel, God with us. That's Isaiah. That's Isaiah's message. And so he came, uh, just a little bit later, in the, same, in the context of the same dialogue with the young king Ahaz, that's where you also have Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Ahaz's kingdom also will fall. Why? Because he's not willing to trust God. But there's a king coming. There's a better son of David coming. There is a redeemer and savior coming. God himself will be with us. That's who's coming. Unto us a child is born. The virgin will be with child. Unto us a son is given. That's more fully explained in, in, in John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Isaiah 9, 6 goes with John chapter 3 and verse 16. Just like Isaiah 7, 14 goes with John 1, 14. You are writing this down, I hope. There's a lot of verses I know that are circling around there. But we need to, we need to move on if we're going to catch the overall flow of Isaiah. From, from verse or chapter 13 or so onward... From chapter 13 onward, there's this extended description of judgments among one nation and people after another that God is going to hold the world accountable. In the midst of that judgment, the promise that judgment is coming, there's also glimpses of not only the death and the judgment, but also of deliverance. You come to the end of that section, in verses 36 to 39, all of a sudden we go from prophetic to narrative. There's a story of another king. He's the son of Ahaz. King Hezekiah actually is a king who will trust the Lord. There comes a time of trouble upon the nation when the Assyrians, the same Assyrian army that Ahaz was going to trust in instead of trusting God, that army is coming and they're surrounding Jerusalem. And what's Hezekiah going to do? Is he going to buy them off? Hezekiah determines instead to trust the Lord. He does what Ahaz refused to do. He does what a king should do. He trusts himself and his people to God. And he takes the letter, the, the letter of threats from those Assyrian generals and he lays it out before the Lord. And he said, Lord, look what they've said about you. Look what they're claiming. Look what they're threatening. And they, they, were, they were speaking not merely against Hezekiah, not merely against, against Jerusalem. They were speaking against the God of Jerusalem. So what God is there that could save you from us? Whatever God has been able to, to stand against the Assyrians and they called God himself to question, and God defended his name because his servant trusted in him, believed him to do that. Who will you trust? The answer is given then in Isaiah chapter 40. I said Isaiah chapter 40 takes a, takes a bit of a turn. I'm going to pass over some verses just to, just to show you how that changes. In Isaiah chapter 40, we move out of that period of judgment, out of the, the judgments that are described among the nations with glimpses of hope along the way. Isaiah doesn't want to overwhelm. In the, the purpose of his judgment is to warn people and to call them to hope instead. But Isaiah chapter 40, the tone changes. And watch how it changes. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. 
Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 3? When John the Baptist is identified, and the people come and they question, who are you, the Pharisee says. And he says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. The 40th book of the New Testament introduces to us John the Baptist, who quotes out of the 40th chapter of the book of Isaiah. Down in verse 9, get up to your high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules with him. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. That, 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 that word of comfort, that promise of restoration, those words of hope continue through the book. Uh, look, at, look at chapter 41 and verse 10. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Can the promises of God stand against the rebellion of humanity? Yes, because God will accomplish them. God will do what he said. He said, I will hold you with my righteous right hand. God will keep his word. He can be counted on to do it. We can trust him. Look at chapter 43. In verse 1, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I think those young men in Daniel had read, they were familiar with Isaiah. They were from Jerusalem where he, where, where he prophesied. They were from the educated families. They would have known of this, this specific promise, and when they're threatened with fire, they're not afraid to go through it because our God is with us. And look, there in the furnace, there's not three, but there's four. God did not abandon them. God upheld them. Chapter 46, verse 12 and 13, it says, Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation, it will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my own glory. I'm going to show myself to Israel. I'm going to show myself through Israel. As I keep my promise to Israel, when I put salvation in the midst of Zion, which is the city of Jerusalem, Israel's going to see it. Everybody's going to see it. The glory of God, the New Testament says, in the face of Jesus Christ. This is how the, 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 the question of Isaiah 1.18, come let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they be red as crimson, they shall be white as wool. How could that happen? He says, because I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. I am going to bring Salvation to Jerusalem. It's in the promise of chapter 7. Unto us a child is born. Or chapter 9. Unto us a son is given. The virgin will be with child and bear a son. And you will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. You see how it ties together. God will keep his promise. The thrust of Isaiah is, what will you trust in? There's many other things to trust in. But instead of all those other things that we could trust in, Isaiah 
urges us, calls us, compels us to trust God instead. God is a God who can be trusted. We can trust God in the midst of all the other stuff that's going on, in the midst of all that that seems overwhelming, we can trust God instead. And specifically, to trust God, you remember in John chapter 14 perhaps that that Jesus says, don't be troubled. You believe in God or believe in God. And then he adds on to that. Don't be troubled or fear not. Believe in God. Believe also in me. The fulfillment of God's promise to trust God is to trust his son. To trust God is to trust the son whom he has said. Somebody may say, well, you know, I believe in God, but I'm just not sure about all that Jesus stuff. Well, the one who has the son, Jesus says, has eternal life. The one who does not have the Son, the one that does not believe in in the Son, Jesus Christ, does not have the Father either. I am not trusting God if I'm not trusting God for the salvation that he has delivered in the purpose, in the person of his Son, thus completing his purpose. You believe in God, you believe also in me. How do I know that I'm believing in the one and true God? Because I'm believing in his Son whom he has sent. You see that shift in Isaiah about chapter 49. Let's go ahead and go to that third, third slide that shows Isaiah 49. You believe in God? Jesus says, believe also in me. Isaiah 49 to, to 66, the last, the last kind of big break that I give to the book, gives us that specifically to trust in God is to trust in his son, the Lord Jesus. Chapter 49 and verse 6. Now the Lord says, He who formed me from his womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered in, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. He says, It's not enough that my servant, the promised one, the Messiah, the coming one, the one born of the virgin, Emmanuel, God with us, the, the child born to us, the son given to us, it's not enough that he would be the one to redeem and restore Israel only. That's not enough. He's greater than that. He's bigger than that. The need is bigger than that. What about the rest of humanity? And God says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One. Who's this sound like? To the one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation. The servant of rulers, kings will see and arise. Princes, they will fall down before you because of the Lord who is faithful. The Holy One of Israel, He has chosen you. That one who would be despised. That one who, is be, who, who, would, who would be rejected. You see, there's the message of the, of the two comings in Isaiah. We're going to see a little more clearly in Isaiah 53 here in just a couple of minutes. But this is where I want to pause. This is where I want us to to turn our attention to the table that's set before us. Because the message of of Isaiah is that there would be the servant of the Lord who would be the servant of the Lord on behalf of the people of the Lord. God had called this nation to be his servant. God called this nation to represent him to all the rest of humanity. And they failed to do that. And he called his son to be for them, to them and to us, what they could not be for themselves. So the Messiah himself, Christ himself, becomes that servant, that true servant, who would first be a suffering servant. 
And some of you, when I say the word suffering servant, you think of Isaiah 53. And that's where I want you to turn. Turn over to Isaiah 53. And I want us to pause here. And there are some of you that aren't seated at tables, and a couple of the ushers are actually going to bring some of the elements for the Lord's table to you individually. But I want us to pause here, and I want us to, to, to consider that table before us. I want us to do it in light of Isaiah 53, in light of his coming at Christmas, and yet to the cross. And then we're going to remind ourselves as well as how we end that communion service. Now, we had, we had planned at this point, in the midst of distributing, maybe we we're going we to add a song, but I think we're just going to pause. I think we're going to, going to just spend some time in prayer. And uh, there's a few folks that, that, again, that aren't at tables, and uh, so those ushers will be bringing those elements to you. But as they do that, as they bring both the bread and the cup, I want us to just to, to pause for a moment and to thank the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we consider your suffering servant. We consider Jesus our Savior, the one promised. And then he arrived. And there's such an expectation. Is this the one who will deliver Israel? Is this the one who will be the king of all the earth? And yet he's crucified, he's rejected. And that for us. Oh, Father, as we read about that, as we hear familiar words again for some of us, Lord, would you speak them into our heart? Would you remind us that this servant, your son, Jesus our Savior, gave himself in death that he might give us eternal life? Thank you, Lord, for this moment together. In Jesus' name.